0: Hello, and welcome to VCCR SSEM Rounds. I'm your host, Richard Iorio, and joining me today will be Senior Emergency Medicine Resident Jim Riley. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Kashani. Dr. Kashani is trained in the fields of nephrology and critical care medicine. He currently is ranked as Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Medical Education. He serves as a consultant in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension, also Division of Pulmonary Critical Care. Uh, in medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. His research interest is focused on the fields of acute kidney injury, acid base and electrolytes, renal replacement therapies, fluid management, simulation medicine, point of care ultrasound, and education. He provides lectures regarding AKI education, fluid management in the ICU and across the globe. He has published 94 peer-reviewed papers and written eight book chapters. Hello, Dr. and How are you today? Hi. So today I'd like to start the podcast off by rounding in our ICU and coming across a patient during our rounds, a 65-year-old female who came in overnight in septic shock secondary to an ascending cholangitis. This woman was subsequently placed on levofed for pressure support and intubated. And as we're coming across our patient in our ICU today, we notice her renal function is starting to deteriorate. She came in with slight AKI in overnight, which has decreased sufficiently overnight to this morning, where she came to the point of developing an acute kidney injury. Dr. Kashani, how would you know that this patient has an acute kidney injury by definition? Um, thank you very much for, uh,
1: for inviting me. This is a great honor to be here. Obviously, uh, there has been many reiterations of uh, AKI definition in the past um, 30 years or so. Eventually, a group called uh, ICDL, the Quality Initiative, they came up with the Rifle Criteria. That has grown into the Injury Network Criteria, and finally, the last version is KDOG Criteria that includes two different components. Really, one is uh, increase in serum creatinine, which could be just Uh, Absolute creatinine increase of 0.3 milligrams per liter or more, uh, or partial increase in creatinine based on the baseline uh, creatinine. That uh, uh, on its own means that we really need to have a baseline creatinine to be able to judge the relative increase in serum creatinine. And obviously, uh, it is a stage uh, in three different intensity stages, one, two, three, uh, based on the level of increase in serum creatinine. As as you very well know, serum creatinine is a very um, uh, non-sensitive, non-specific marker of acute kidney injury and kidney function on its own, and it's very delayed on majority of cases, particularly for sepsis, uh, production of serum creatinine decreases. So the sicker patient they are, the slower uh, rise in their serum creatinine it is. Uh, particularly with the amount of volume they receive so you have to be very careful with interpretation of serum creatinine on its own the other component of definition is also important is decline in uh, urine output which is ignored in majority of cases in decreasing urine output again in three different stages based on the uh, number of hours that urine output has been low and the amount of urine they make also defines acute kidney injury uh, based on KDGO criteria. And uh, it is slightly more timely and more sensitive criteria for acute kidney injury. There have been occasions that patients do not even have a bump in their serum creatinine, but they have been oliguric for a day or two. Those patients actually do worse than those who had uh, normal uh, serum creatinine and uh, normal urine output throughout the course of their admission ICU.
0: That's very interesting. Do you, would you recommend uh, practitioners be more aggressive with a treatment if the oliguria is a day or two in and their creatinine hasn't changed at all?
1: So, uh, what, what does it mean? It's basically kind of, it is extremely important to pay attention to urine output. It's another vital sign that uh, we generally tend to ignore a lot. Uh, we find out about oliguria when patients are deeply oliguric but a slight decrease in urine output for six hours, so less than 0.5 cc per kg per hour for six consecutive hours, generally means acute kidney injury. And this is something a vital sign that generally tend to ignore. Uh, we are, as intensivists, we are always informed about low urine output when uh, urine output is significantly lower than threshold for significantly larger number of hours. And that uh, uh, delays the diagnosis, and any minute delay in diagnosis and intervention, prevention of acute kidney injury would be associated with deeper injury and uh, worse outcome.
0: That, that's a great take-home point for our practitioners taking care of these sick patients to get nephrology on board as soon as possible when they notice the allegoria is is, is showing up.
1: This is a great point. There are, there are many studies. Uh, three... Uh, at least three uh, uh, randomized studies that uh, showed that any delay
0: in nephrology consultation would inc- uh, be associated with increased mortality good I'm, gl- I'm glad they're getting this information out there now any biomarkers that you can think of that we can also send for in these patients of course so
1: uh, as, as uh, we talked about urine output and serum creatinine are markers of kidney function but they do not provide any information about why kidneys failing, and uh, also the intensity of acute kidney injury. As I mentioned, serum creatinine takes 48 hours to reach a new balance after the decline in GFR, but it doesn't have anything to do with the extent of injury that patients uh, tolerate. So uh, there are obviously traditional uh, markers that we use for kidney function, uh, but there have been new developments uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, in uh, biomarkers that can identify injury to the kidney, particularly tubular cells. And recently, uh, we have uh, two new biomarkers that can indicate uh, stress to uh, tubular cells, which is better than even injury markers. Because as you know, when uh, you use uh, analogy of uh, heart attack, um, when you have a heart attack, you have a chest pain. So you will seek medical attention very quickly. But kidney does not cause any pain. Its failure can go very uh, intense and very advanced without any pain or symptoms. Therefore, having a marker to be measured in high-risk patients and identify patients that are under stress or that are injured can give us potentially a chance to design and provide preventive or hopefully in the near future therapeutic options.
0: That's, are any of these FDA approved by any chance?
1: So uh, the stress biomarkers that um, uh, was recently validated uh, was approved uh, in, uh, by FDA in 2014. Uh, they are uh, co- products of two bio different proteins that are involved with cell cycle arrest. Um, which is a, a natural part of uh, um, a repair process after kidney injury. Uh, these two proteins are included by spiny uh, uh, protein uh, uh, factor 7, and uh, also a tissue inhibitor metalloprotein is uh, type 2.
0: Oh, th- thank you very much. That's very interesting. Um, any risk factors at all that you would? See a patient having that develop an AKI or CKD. Of course, uh, So uh, it is very really important to risk stratify patients uh,
1: because, uh, at least measuring biomarkers or looking at patients without knowing the risk of development like acute kidney is very hard to provide a uh, good clinical judgment. There are obviously some risk factors that um, are universal for our patient in you that have with uh, uh, a associated acute kidney injury risk factors could be slightly different. So traditional risk factors include age. Uh, when, when you are uh, older, automatically your risk of acute kidney injury increases. For substance associated acute kidney injury, female gender is associated with acute kidney injury. And then some comorbidities, including a history of chronic kidney disease, diabetes, history of heart failure, malignancy, or liver disease would increase chance of acute kidney injury. There are some specific acute kidney injury risk factors as well in the literature. Uh, one would be um, uh, bloodstream infection, more than any other types of infection. So particularly gram-negative bacteria and also fungal uh, bloodstream infections are associated with high risk of acute kidney injury. And then comes to abdominal and GU infections um, and then uh, infective endocarditis would be uh, the, uh, uh, one in the uh, last. Delayed antibiotics. Any minute that we delay prescription of antibiotics to septic patients, we increase their chance of development of acute kidney injury as well.
2: Uh, sorry, So, doctor, just for uh, clarification, this is Jim. When, when you mentioned bacteremia and fungemia as uh, risk factors for, in uh, you know, worsened AKI in a septic patient, do you mean like a history of that or a current concomitant infection?
1: So most of the patients that we see, uh, we order cultures and obviously we don't know if they are bacteremic or not. But uh, if you have a knowledge, a patient coming to you from outside the institution or uh, you have a knowledge that history of multiple bacterial uh, bacteremias or fungemias exists, then you should consider that patient as a very high risk patient for acute kidney injury. Okay,
2: thank you
0: and um i think that's a huge very important point to take home uh, and i'll just reiterate that is the early antibiotics uh, of course in sepsis and you can avoid having a person develop an aki and being put on uh dialysis if you get those antibiotics on board early which which begs me to ask the question sometimes um i do emergency medicine and critical care i work in the sicu at my hospital The question that comes up a lot is with these antibiotics that can be causing a uh, kidney dysfunction, is there any risk at causing further kidney dysfunction by giving them that first dose of one gram that's not a vancomycin, that's not renally dosed or any other antibiotic for that reason? So um, the
1: recommendation for the loading dose is regardless of kidney function. So if kidney doesn't work at all or it works completely well the loading dose is the same. Um, and So I would suggest consider early loading patients with uh, empiric therapy for infections that the clinicians think the source is. Uh, and then uh, realizing what the dose for the continuation, the maintenance dose is, depends on measurement of kidney function and adjusting the doses. So the uh, loading dose would be exactly the same for all patients, regardless of their kidney function. Uh, so it's kidney function independent, and that's why it is important to avoid uh, thinking of that this patient has very poor kidney function, so I'm not going to use vancomycin. The, every patient needs to be loaded with vancomycin if the gram-positive cocci infection are in differential diagnosis. Uh, and and kind of four other antibiotics, the same. There's growing literature that shows some antibiotics that are associated with uh, higher risk of acute kidney injury. However, None of these studies have any biomarkers that are antibiotic-associated acute kidney injury or antibiotic-induced uh, acute kidney injury-specific biomarker. Uh, so as sepsis on its own is a huge risk factor for acute kidney injury, it's very hard to delineate if that was antibiotic that worsened the kidney function or if this is a sepsis. Um, and what I would suggest is that uh, treat sepsis-associated acute kidney injury as we treat all other septic patients. Uh, Appropriate resuscitation with fluids without uh, allowing them become volume overloaded. Uh, uh, Using vasopressors uh, um, um, as as needed. Early antibiotics, culture, and uh, measurement of lactate as we do uh, based on surviving sepsis campaign guidelines uh, would be recommended for management of sepsis associated IQ kidney injury as well.
2: So, uh, Doc, in that vein, if you have a patient with, who is ICU-bound with sepsis, you know, multilobar pneumonia, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, meningitis or something like that, but they also have risk factors that would, you know, make you more concerned that they would develop in, uh, you know, a sepsis-related AKI, do you, you feel like you should be cognizant of uh, your, you know, antibiotic coverage considering a patient might, you know, be more prone to AKI? Like, May, should you be more hesitant to administer kind of a nephrotoxic antibiotic like vancomycin or should you maybe try to err on the side of uh, narrower coverage but less renal uh, renal risk with these with these right. kind of this patients?
1: Is, this is is really excellent uh, discussion because uh, I don't know if you remember, a few years ago there was a term introduced in literature called renalism. These were patients who needed cardiac characterization and had a poor kidney function. And a lot of clinicians decided not to proceed with cardiac characterization because kidney function was really poor, and they died because of heart attack or very bad coronary artery disease. And uh, so we have to kind of leave it to the judgment of physicians. What I would suggest is that if empirically uh, we think that there is a source of infection that needs some sort of antibiotics, Um, I would suggest to proceed and then deal with aftermath later. However, if there is a safer alternative that covers the same bug, obviously would recommend to use that. If there is no alternative, I would suggest go with uh, even nephrotoxic uh, 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 antibiotics to cover the infection because patients uh, certainly need to stay alive first. Without appropriate antibiotics, mortality is so high that they cannot suffer from acute kidney injury because they are not alive. Um, Having acute kidney injury obviously is not a good thing to happen, but uh, we need to keep these patients alive uh, using appropriate antibiotic regimen.
2: Excellent. So so you're saying that uh, treating the sepsis should be your number one concern? Take take the AKI into consideration, but you can fix that later if you have to.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, and thanks. then those adjustments based on GFR for the second dose of antibiotics is extremely important. We recently looked into uh, using C-Statin-C for those adjustments for vancomycin, which we found that uh, using an algorithm based on C-Statin-C would get us to target the range without causing toxicity significantly more than using serum creatinine. Uh, there are different ways of managing uh, the, uh, doses. Are less nephrotoxic yet can provide appropriate antibiotic coverage.
0: And since we're on the topic of uh, of nephrotoxic agents, where do you stand on contrast? Because I know that's a big topic as well. As some people think, the loading dose or the actual contrast at the time of the GFR of the uh, excuse me at the time it was given can cause an AKI. Where, how do, you, where do you stand on exactly on giving contrast in, in patients with AKI? Uh,
1: that's, that's a great question. Uh, we actually recently looked into large number of our ICU patients with different levels of baseline GFR that needed a CT scan with contrast. And um, uh, above a GFR of 45, we not find any difference in acute injury incidence. Below GFR of 45 at the baseline, 45 million baseline, we found a slight increase in the need for dialysis. However, there was no increase in overall risk of acute kidney injury. So, um, contrast. There is no doubt that contrast worsens vasoconstriction of afferent arteriole and decreases GFR for. Um, uh, for for, uh, a few um, minutes, like 90 to 120 minutes. And then this can cause furthering ischemia and damage. So there's no doubt pathophysiologically contrast could cause problem. However, contrast on its own, it would be very unlikely to cause acute kidney injury. There certainly need to be other factors that contribute to the development of acute kidney injury. For this particular case, If a surgeon tells me that I cannot operate in this ascending cholangiotis without contrast uh, CT scan, I would say go for uh, contrast and uh, keep the patient alive. Um, And uh, we provide appropriate uh, uh, prophylactic measures. Uh, Obviously, there are not many options we can offer. However, avoiding hypovolemia would be one option. Avoiding medications that uh, further uh, cause vasoconstriction of arterioles arterioles are important. Uh, and uh, some, some references uh, recommend using statins or um, N-acetylcysteine. So all of those are potential options. But at the end of the day, uh, when patients need that information to remain alive, if the information is vital, I would not hold off on contrast-induced studies.
0: And uh, that, that brings me into the next hot question that I find all the time. Are there any indications that any of those modalities work, bicarb, fluid uh, resuscitation prior to contrast, fluid resuscitation post-contrast, and if so, uh, what are those guidelines?
1: So uh, there is uh, no guideline based on uh, data, and there are expert opinions uh, in the literature because there is no data. Uh, Majority of studies in the field have been contradicting each other. And uh, the idea is uh, when you have afferent arterial vasoconstriction due to dehydration, giving contrast would make things worse. You only need to avoid this baseline uh, 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 hyperperfusion of the kidney uh, due to dehydration. So if your patient is dry, give him fluid, regardless of what type of fluid you choose. Give him some fluid, make him uvulamic, then give him contrast. If patients are not dry, or in your clinical judgment, patient is volume overloaded, uh, I would not even suggest using uh, additional fluid. Uh, The reason is that uh, if you give fluid to anybody, if you take a 19-year-old with healthy kidney and give two liters of normal saline to that young individual, I certainly increase that person's GFR. Therefore, I decrease serum creatinine um, because GFR, for a short period of time, um increases uh, uh due to that fluid now uh, we hydrate these patients we increase gfr those who actually have gfr we increase their gfr we decrease serum creatinine and we judge the effect of uh, our intervention based on that particular uh, test which is serum creatinine we directly uh, uh, affected that serum creatinine using fluid um, uh, in these cases so All the studies that are doing contrast-induced nephropathy uh, judgment are based on um, kind of the fact that uh, they mix all the different causes of acute kidney injury, by chance they receive contrast as well. Second is that uh, prophylactic measures are all on the air because uh, they are based on different understanding of pathophysiology of
0: contrast-induced nephropathy. And any other tests that you like to look at besides BUN and creatinine when you round on your patients in the ICU? Of course. Uh,
1: uh, the first test that I asked um, uh, the teams, the uh, providers, to do is urine analysis. I would consider urine analysis as liquid biopsy of the kidney. Uh, urine analysis may not be a very sensitive test, however, it's extremely specific. It can give us an understanding of uh, the pathophysiology behind acute kidney disease. That of what you can do. So, if uh, you have a patient, uh, uh, if, if our patient has renal tubular cells or muddy brown caps, the, the deal is very clear. The patient has APS. But if I find hematuria or uh, uh, a red blood cell caps, then that's a different story. I want to think about potential uh, IgA nephropathy or other causes that can cause rapid progressive growth nephritis. And so it is extremely important to order urine analysis. Among that, uh, previous studies have looked at uh, urine indexes to identify uh, patients who have decreased intravascular volume versus those who have tubular cell damage. So fractional excretion of sodium, fractional fractional excretion of urea, and, and other indexes that are available in literature. And uh, particularly in sepsis, uh, in a meta-analysis uh, published about 10 years ago, there is no uh, uh, solid research data behind uh, those tests to show they are actually uh, important in setting up sepsis as with va kidney injury. So only I use them for confirmation of my clinical judgment. Uh, I do not uh, uh, rely on single uh, fractional excretion of sodium to make a decision that this patient is prerenal, therefore needs more volume. Indeed, when we have low fractional excretion of sodium, differential diagnosis is very wide. You can uh, potentially have uh, a prerenal status. However, you can have early ATN, early GN, any contrast, any NSAIDs, AT inhibitors, and uh, rhabdomyolysis, they all can cause decreased fractional excretion of uh, sodium, including heart failure and liver failure. They all do that. Uh, so, if you don't consider that differential diagnosis in the context of patient, then it would be always
0: misleading. And um, are there any fluids that you like to stay away from, or that you like to use in the ICU for patients with AKI or developing AKI and sub- subsequent CKD? Right.
1: So, um, in recent uh, at, at last 10 years, there have been many studies uh, to compare colloids versus crystalloids. And uh, what is very clear is that uh, hydroxyethyl starch is probably harmful to the kidney. So uh, we do not uh, use uh, head starch anymore. Um, same for other colloids that are natu- not natural. Uh, albumin versus crystalloids, there are still kind of debates on uh, sepsis associated acute kidney injury. There is a meta-analysis uh, that showed potential benefit of albumin resuscitation and sepsis Patients for mortality. However, they may have higher chance of development of acute kidney injury down the road, about seven to 14 days after exposure. Uh, For crystalloids, uh, we really uh, kind of look at the patient. So crystalloids are uh, medications, and they should be treated as other medications. We uh, generally tend to use normal saline for all comers uh, in ICU, which is, in my opinion, is wrong. Uh, way of approaching it. So if I have a patient with metabolic alkalosis or intracranial hypertension, probably I will choose normal saline. But if uh, I have a patient with normal chloremia or hyperchloremia, I would try to avoid it because high chloride concentration uh, in plasma would be associated with worsening vasoconstriction of afferent arterial, therefore decrease GFR and acute kidney injury. This has been looked at in several recent studies mostly retrospective, and and there is significant uh, uh, physiologic rationale as well that high chloride concentration in fluid therapy would be associated with higher chance of acute kidney injury.
0: I I agree completely, and and, uh, also the compounding other medicines that you're giving them that can give them nephrotoxicity as well on top of the normal saline. Absolutely. Um, So now that we're winding down, Our patients subsequently need some sort of management for their AKI. Are you fond of any particular managements, or is there a system or a sort of protocol you use? So um, uh,
1: management uh, should be kind of divided in two different um, uh, ways. Uh, Usually our management is late in the course. So uh, just let's go back to analogy uh, with uh, our colleagues in cardiology. Uh, So if uh, patients have uh, STEMI, they need to revascularize within 90 minutes. And after that 90 minutes, uh, doing revascularization would be associated with higher risk. But for the kidney failure, we do not have that luxury to identify patients with acute kidney injury in the first 90 minutes. And generally, we identify these patients down the road, 48, 72 hours down the road, when there is not much to do outside of uh, supporting patients. So if their metabolic milieu is completely off the chart, they have significant electrolyte acid-base imbalances or significant volume overload, then dialysis would be an option. Otherwise, medical management of electrolytes, volume management uh, medically would be the next step on those who don't need dialysis just yet. But early uh, interventions, this is something that a lot of uh, nephrology intensivists are trying to look at If we can find a way to identify these patients really early in the course, gain more golden hours, then we can potentially proceed with some sort of prophylactic or therapeutic option. There was a recent study published um, from Germany. They had a randomized clinical trial of very high risk patients after cardiovascular surgery, and they identified, uh, they randomized in two groups. The control arm was the standard of care and intervention arm was those who actually had c- significant um, ma- hemodynamic management plans. And that was protocolized. And they showed significant decrease uh, in number of patients who had acute kidney injury and significant decline in number of patients who had severe acute kidney injury. So it is a preventable disease. However, we generally find it at the time that we only get stuck with only management. and. Um, Obviously, medical management would be limiting um, uh, potassium phosphorus in their diet uh, or try to treat hyperkalemia with diuretics uh, or resins um, and kind of give them base as uh, if they become acidemic um, and try to avoid volume overload. That is kind of the gist of medical management uh, without need for dialysis. For dialysis, obviously, we try to correct their metabolic milieu. Uh, provide a better chance to recover. Obviously, in a, in a uremic uh, metabolic milieu, you have certainly less chance of good function from white blood cells, platelets, and these patients are really at higher risk of complications if you don't dialyze them um, uh, early enough.
0: And um, so to ask a question for most, for some of our fellows that might be listening out there, is there any data to support uh, a Lasix drip or Lasix pushes?
1: Uh, so there was a dose trial, um, recently was done in uh, heart failure patient, they w- didn't find any difference in outcome, uh, and it was slight uh, increase in urine um, uh, r- uh, volume removal with uh, lacy strip, but there was no difference, uh, that not statistically significant at least. So um, and I would leave it to the clinical judgment of fellows and clinicians on the ground. If you have a patient that is extremely volume overloaded, but very tenuous and doesn't tolerate uh, pushes of uh, Lasix, uh, we sometimes consider Lasix drip. That would be on the eye of beholder after clinical judgment. If patients can uh, receive uh, both of the diuretics because they are hemodynamically more stable, I would not get them uh, to have another line uh, for IV drip uh, for Lasix per se. I would just give him boluses of IV or
0: switch him to equivalent oral. I, I agree completely. And now I'm gonna switch the microphone over to Dr. Riley to see if there's any resident level questions that we
2: may have. Alright Doc. So first of all I wanted to tell you that, you know, I I Googled you a little bit before this interview and you're very well represented on the internet. So Clearly, you're a you know uh, influential voice in your field, and I really wanted to thank you for the, the time that you've already given us. Uh, however, I think like I, it would be a big missed opportunity for me because I'm sitting here listening, you know, to you talk to Rich, and a lot of uh, practical clinical questions are coming up in my mind. And I feel like if while I have you on the phone, you seem like the kind of guy that would have the answer to these kind of things. So hope you bear with me, but I just got a couple things that I wanted uh, to you know kind of get your input on. Uh, so the first one was that we kind of, it seemed to me like we kind of focused more on, like, uh, pre-renal AKIs in the setting of, like, sepsis and ICU admissions. Uh, However, I I wonder if you had any, like, opinions on um, early differentiation of, you know, pre-renal versus, like, parenchymal or, you know, obstructive kind of AKI, because, you know, some of these patients, you know, they come in with you know, we get patients that drink like the, you know, the toxic alcohols, or the, you know, lupus patients, or people with pyelonephritis, sepsis. Even, you know, some of their AKI, I feel like you can attribute to not only prerenal but parenchymal injury. And I wonder if uh, stratifying those types of injury uh, at all play a ro- play at all a role in your uh, your treatment or workup.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good question because uh, I grew in the system that uh, we were all told when patient has acute kidney injury. Uh, divide them in three different categories, prerenal, renal and post-renal. And um, um, nowadays we know, even prerenal patients, when you give them some fluid and they recover, majority of them already have acute kidney injury uh, at the molecular and cellular level. So uh, cells are already damaged, but they haven't been damaged to a point of no return. Uh, so early intervention on those patients has resulted in improvement in function. Even those who have reco- uh, uh, returned to a baseline function, it doesn't mean that they have the same number of nephrons. And mm-hmm. uh, generally, kidney has a huge uh, reservoir capacity. Uh, nephrons, generally, in a normal individual, not all nephrons work in a full capacity. So when nef- other nephrons die, or when we age and we lose some of our nephrons, other remaining nephrons start working harder. And um, this can get to creatinine back to baseline. So prerenal uh, recently are not looked at as really favorable terminology. Uh, most of those patients who have um, hemodynamic issues that uh, cause kidney injury uh, that used to um, categorize them as prurenal, uh, they already have acute kidney injury as well. So they have some sort of parenchymal This is only uh, in 10, 20 years ago, we did not have uh, laboratory resolution to see those changes. But now we can see with these biomarkers. So generally, group came up with this diaspora of uh, approach to patients with acute kidney injury. So consider a two-by-two table. And in one side is serum creatinine or any functional biomarker, urine output included, And the other side would be uh, injury biomarkers. So patients who have the normal creatinine, no evidence of injury, they have no acute kidney injury, obviously. Those who have injury markers elevated and serum creatinine elevated, and those are true acute kidney injury patients. And the two categories in between, one that has um, evidence of injury but has no elevation in serum creatinine, those are subclinical acute kidney injuries that we used to call Per renal. and in addition, uh, there is a group that they have elevated serum creatinine, but no evidence of injuries. So biomarker injuries are negative, and those patients are those who potentially hemodynamic-related issues has resulted elevation in serum creatinine, and those are very rare nowadays. We know that the incidence of this last category is very small. So sticking with that old category can help us to. Uh, to kind of frame uh, overall approach to the patient, but uh,
2: scientifically, it doesn't
1: doesn't match with what patients
2: actually experience. Excellent. It's, it's good to know that my medical school education that is only three years old is already obsolete in terms of getting <laughs> disease
1: It's not obsolete. It's just <laughs> you need to kind of uh, consider that uh, in a context of uh, issues. Now that we have better tests, higher resolution, we can identify those patients who... We used to call prerenal as real sub, uh, acute
2: kidney injury. Excellent. Uh, the next, the other question I have for you is that I, I typically get this request a lot from, uh, you know, the admitting team uh, when I have a patient with uh, an AKI that we're admitting. Uh, they always ask for a uric acid, and uh, I don't, I don't remember ever being taught in med school or any of my training actually the actual mechanism through which you uric acid is used to assess or what they're using the uric acid to assess for. I was hoping you could shed a little light on that for me.
1: So uric acid is cleared by kidney and when GFR goes down, all the toxins, that, all the substances that are cleared by kidney um, naturally get accumulated. And obviously uh, uric acid is one of them. there are some uric acid nephropathy cases as well those are patients that have significant tumor lysis syndrome or very chronic uh, very high level of uric acid and they get cast uh, formation in their tubular system um, and so these are two different issues generally patients with chronic kidney disease have higher uric acid and uh, patients with acute kidney injury may develop higher uric acid as well the good thing is that Septic patients, uh, they do not generate a lot of uh, uric acid because metabolism is low. Uh, they lose a lot of muscle, but uh, they do not generate uh, that much to produce uric acid. Uh, so for sepsis, it's a little different ball game. but uh, generally, if you have a patient with declining GFR, you will notice a slight increase in uric acid as well.
2: So the, the clearance dynamics of uric acid are slightly different than that of creatinine so that you can better interpret your creatinine in? Not uh, really.
1: So, um, again, there are so many factors. Uh, that's why creatinine may not be appropriate measure of GFR either. Uh, there are so many factors that can impact clearance, um, uh, excretion, uh, filtration, or production of serum creatinine. Uh, So, uh, I just mentioned that in septic patients, production of uh, creatinine decreases. Uh, So, when production goes down, you may not have rapid rise in serum creatinine, despite the fact that your GFR significantly decreased. Uh, If you have uh, medications like Bactrim uh, that uh, impact the excretion of serum creatinine from in the tubules, you will have increase in serum creatinine without any decline in GFR. So really kind of we really need to kind of, again, look into the context of the issue, try to interpret changes in kinetics of clotting accordingly.
2: Uh, Very succinct. Thank you. That's that's helpful. Uh, The last one as a, you know, kind of an aside, uh, one issue that I run into commonly are uh, patients who present with acute pulmonary edema uh, in the setting of, you know, chronic kidney disease or, you know, ESRD. I was wondering if you had any opinions on how to properly dose Lasix in the setting of CKD.
1: So uh, Lasix dose, uh, again, is dose based on uh, several different factors. So obviously patients who come with respiratory failure, you want the rate of urine output significantly increased. So uh, generally, uh, judging based on baseline GFR, you can adjust your dose. There is a, a phenomax concept. Uh, the maximum fractional excretion of sodium that you can get from each nephron. So if you have a normal kidney with like 1.5 million nephrons, uh, you only need to uh, increase uh, one drop of urine from each nephron to add two liters to urine output. But if you have a patient who has only 50,000 nephrons and you want to increase their urine output by two liters, you really need to poise all the loop of Henle in all uh, nephrons to be able to achieve that 2 liters. And to do that, you really need higher dose of uh, uh, diuretic, uh, loop diuretics. And so, uh, baseline GFR is certainly important in uh, decision-making process. What we do here is that we uh, estimate the appropriate dose for each patient. Obviously, as bioavailability of uh, lasix, particularly in setting of volume overload is very uh, poor it's like 25 to 50% uh, we try to start them on uh, IV lasix to have a bioavailability of 100% and then we start from a dose that we consider appropriate for patient wait about uh, 1 hour if patient urine output does not increase as we expect we double the dose until we reach the appropriate dose um, if you have a patient with uh, diuretic resistance and you do everything and you still have trouble with volume removal, then uh, there have been studies on um, um, artificial volume removal using ultrafiltration. A Mayo Clinic participated in a study called on-load trial and um, that the patients were randomized uh, into a peripheral device using peripheral vein to remove volume. Uh, versus uh, diuretics. And uh, they didn't show um, uh, changes in general outcome. However, patients who underwent ultrafiltration in comparison with diuretics, uh, they had significantly less number of return to the hospital or emergency department within 90 days. And they had significantly higher amount of volume removed. Uh, when you have a very uh, volume overloaded patient uh, with a kidney uh, that is very congested, Generally, they respond to diuretics is very poor. In our experience, when you give them ultrafiltration chance, they respond to diuretics significantly and progressively increase. Uh, kidney congestion is one concept that I would suggest uh, our colleagues in intensive care pay attention to. Any increase in CBP a, a beyond the one millimeter mercury would be associated with high, significantly higher risk of acute kidney injury. Kidney congestion is extremely bad as uh, much as kidney ischemia is. Uh, so, um, generally, uh, our approach is to adjust the dose of diuretics as needed. If you feel that we are not uh, moving forward, uh, we have a lower threshold to start off of filtration for a short period of time.
2: Oh, all right, thank you very much. So Phenomax and kidney congestion, that's my homework for the weekend. <laughs> awesome, thank you. That is good.
0: Well, Dr. Kashani, thank you so much for your time today. And um, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: This this was absolute pleasure, and I hope that the discussions that we had today uh, is helpful to uh, our audience, and uh, they can they can kind of at least uh, stimulate them to um, uh, kind of go into pay more attention to our colleagues patients in acute kidney injury. Uh, as, you, as you very well know, acute kidney injury has been known to cause significant uh, bad outcomes, including mortality. And based on the current data, we can easily say that uh, uh, not only kidney, uh, not only heart and brain are vital uh, organs, but kidney is also a vital organ. And regardless of uh, replacing kidney function with dialysis, mortality is higher, independent of any other organ dysfunction or any other factor. So kidney is extremely important to protect.
0: Exactly. I agree completely. Thank you again for your time today, and I will be talking to you shortly.
1: My pleasure.
3: Richard Iurio, MD. Dr. Richard Iurio is co-director of Lincoln Medical Center's Emergency Department, Critical Care Division in the South Bronx. Dr. Iurio is a native Long Islander who completed most of his training in the New York area. Dr. Iurio is an educator for residents, nurses, fellows, mid-level practitioners, and medical students. His passion is to make critical care medicine more accessible to anyone taking care of critically ill patients. His academic interests are trauma, resuscitation, sepsis, and patient safety. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.